Kia ora and welcome to the Happy Revolution podcast. My name is Rain and I am a student studying sociology and religious studies here at Vic. I'm here with my co-host Matthew, a Christian chaplain at Victoria University. We chat to academics, activists, pastors and public figures about their lives and areas of expertise and what brings them hope. Today we're talking to Brittany Hoback. Brittany is a mother, daughter, wife, adventurer, sailor, learner and teacher. She is doing her PhD in linguistics here at Te Heringa Waka in the School of Linguistics and Applied Language Studies. Brittany is here to talk to us about language, culture, faith journeys, hope and the spirit of the individual. Welcome Brittany, it's wonderful that you've joined us to be interviewed today, thank you very much. Thank you, it is an honour and it's kind of fitting because I've interviewed people for my work and now I'm on the opposite side. Right. <laughs> what is your work? My PhD work is working with my partner to assist the community in um, writing what used to be an oral language and creating a writing system, as well as documenting the language. So doing a lot of recordings of casual speech, interviewing people about their own histories, recording custom stories, lots of different things. Which community is that? Yeah, it's a community in southeast Malakulu Island of Vanuatu. And it's a um, speaker community of estimated around a thousand speakers for the language and it is a separate language so if you go a little bit to the north or a little bit to the south there's a different language but it's not dialects of one language they are completely different languages Mm. some similar grammatical structures but enough cognates that they can kind of communicate with each other and understand some things but a very different language so when my mother-in-law speaks the language north of us I can catch Maybe the flow of things, but I can't catch the words. What's the language called? A Dengan. And that was actually part of our project as well, was deciding what the name would be called. Because in the past, it's just been called based on its location of, oh, this is Banham Bay language. But Banham Bay is actually only just one part of where people that speak the language reside. So um, as a community, they decided the word Dengan, which kind of means of this place, or um, was the appropriate name for the language. What an amazing task to be writing down and naming or helping name or eliciting the name of a, of a language for the very first time ever. Yes, it's been a fun and challenging task and um, feels enormous, but it probably will be a lifetime task, a lifetime working with the community and whatever aims they're after. Is that your plan, to be working on it your whole life long? Probably, yeah, that's... At least that's been the plan so far, was that, yes, this, for my PhD, it would kind of start the documentation record. It would start the process of, we um, hosted two community workshops going through, okay, seems like we have these sounds in the language. How do we want those to look? Um, What kind of letter combinations or letters or symbols do we want to represent the nga sound or the nga sound? But I feel like... Those were two conversations. We made some good decisions, but it was very, very early and still early in my understanding of the language, too. So as I'm now doing some of the grammatical analysis of the recordings that I have, going back and finding more questions of what what do we consider a word? What do we consider part of a word, you know, for kind of things like how do you conjugate a verb? And then it's a complex Sorry, it's going to be technical language, but morphologically complex language, which means that there's a lot of different pieces of information that get added on to words to give information about how many people you're addressing or how many people are doing the action. So if there's two people doing the action, it's going to have a different start to the verb than one person or than you or than those people over there. And then there's also different morphology for things that are happening that we know are happening and things that were are projected to happen but maybe haven't happened yet. So all of those get added on to maybe the verb. So whether we decide that those are separate little things when we're writing them or whether those are part of the verb and making a really long word. Those are all kinds of the decisions that we are going through with the community and will be going through probably for a long time. As an English speaker, yeah. entering into someone else's space and language that is a really sacred space what processes did you go through to ready yourself for that process 
Okay. Once upon a time, I was a sailor on a big tall ship. On that tall ship, we went through Vanuatu and stayed for about six months in Vanuatu. Met my partner, who was at a sailing school that our ship was helping out with. The next season, decided I was really interested in him and jumped off and lived in his village. So jump ship, lived in his village for three to four months and started learning the language because I th- language is really important and it's a big value in um, as part of the identity. And so about when I felt like I could clearly express myself enough in the pidgin English language, Bislama, which is the national language, most people in the community started switching back to Dengen. So just about is when I felt like, okay, I can communicate clearly, I can understand clearly. The language switched. And so then I started learning Dengen. But I think maybe through that process and through who I am, I was I approached things as a learner. And so that's continued on as I've started the linguistic project of even working with the community saying, I am not an expert. I'm here to learn and I have some knowledge that I'm gaining while I learn linguistics about how we could make these choices, but I'm here to learn from you and your language. So these are your decisions and I'm just writing them on the board, basically. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess that would be how I would have approached it through the project, but I approached it kind of in that way through life first and then backwardsly became a linguist because it was an important project for the mm-hmm. community. But when I was living in the community for those three to four months, I realized that as much as I was diving in fully and trying to be a part of the culture, trying to learn the language, trying to be a part of everything, that I also was starting to lose myself because I found I do need something intellectual for myself. I enjoy working in the garden, I enjoy cooking, but I need something along with for myself. And so then felt like actually my skills that I have of liking research and of liking academic stuff, maybe I could do something within the community. So I went back to school for my master's in cultural anthropology, thinking maybe that would be a route. And then when I came back to the community, they were kind of like, yeah, that's nice. White people can study anything. (laughs) And so then listening to more of what would be important to the community. And that's when there was a shift within the education system of saying we would like to put the vernacular language into the schools. And then while I was there with my partner, we were talking about different things that I could do. And I said, I like language. I want to learn more about language. And he went to a teacher's conference where they were talking about this is the shift that we're trying to do. Now what we need to do is find somebody to help us write our language. And he came back and said, you said you were interested in language. Would this be something that you would want to work on? And I went, cool, okay. So maybe that's my lifetime project that I can do for myself if I were to live in Vanuatu more permanently Mm. alongside, you know, maintaining our garden, maintaining our home, cooking and stuff. That is an amazing story. so interesting. (laughs) There's so many different bits in there that I Mm. want to sort of chase up, but one thing that was interesting to me was you're talking about losing yourself and makes me wonder, what did you learn about yourself or, and about culture and about how you are in different different zones and I, I gather you came from America and mm. went to Vanuatu via some sailing ships. Yes, via some. <laughs> what did you learn about what it means to be alive and a human going through those phases? I've been traveling since I graduated high school and I think each time I've tried travel I like going into a culture and kind of fully immersing myself into the culture but I think the awareness that I gained from doing that so fully was that actually I need to make sure that I'm aware of who I am as well because I need to honor both I can fully immerse myself into a culture but I need to bring me with with myself if that makes sense I need to make sure that I'm also there and I think for me the reason that that was such a big awareness was because it was such a contrast from the life that I had been living on the ship very independent very self-sufficient and feeling strong and capable on my ship and then going to being immersed in the community which was very communal at the beginning I was told to rest a lot which really frustrated me because I felt like that's not who I am that's not who I've been Um, I can do things and so I think there was a lot of negotiation and trying to understand each other on both sides of 
that no, I'm not a tourist coming to just relax and have things done for me. I actually want to do things. So their understanding of that on of me and then my understanding that because I was working so hard to jump into everything, to do everything, to show that I was capable, I wasn't taking any time for myself or things that I enjoy outside of that. And so I think that's where I got lost. And there's a whole story around that and that awareness that was pretty, it was a very obvious awareness, but that's a whole nother story. <laughs> a big story. <laughs> For another day, perhaps. Um, this language, Dengen, is that how you say it? Yep, Dengen. Do you speak it? I understand more than I can speak. Mm-hmm. I can speak some, but I also, my older teenage son makes fun of me when I speak, so I've gotten a little shy of my pronunciation, but I can understand Quite a bit. Can you speak some for us now? Mavo Peperen. That's good morning. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting that I feel like language learning, there's always some bashfulness mm. about it. I find mm. it very hard when I've done some language learning of actually risking myself to fat <laughs> that. I'm not deep into it at all. You mentioned there's just a thousand odd speakers of Dingen. Yeah. That's amazing. Yes. Is that a decline or has it always been roughly that number or? It's a good question. I'm not really sure. So Vanuatu overall has been estimated to have between 120 to 138 different languages in a pretty small physical geographical area as an archipelago. It's been said to have the highest language density per population. Hmm. So it doesn't have the most languages as a country, but for the population, it's a very high density of languages. So many of the languages are under a thousand speakers. And part of that might be some decline um, because there's a lot of competition with English, French, and Bislama, and then even neighboring languages. But probably it's always been a multilingual country where there's been a lot of smaller languages. Why so many languages there? Yeah, it's a good question. Not really sure. So some people think that, oh, you have to be kind of geographically separated for languages to develop on their own. One proposed theory about Vanuatu languages is that different kind of tribal or family communities kept enough similarities within the vocabulary with their neighboring languages to communicate for trade, um, because there's quite a few extensive trade communities, but also possibly kind of actively changed their language a little bit so that in negotiations, they could say things that were um, kind of in group without being understood by the other group. Um, so that, so I think that's kind of cool, actually, of that it's not just that it may have happened in isolation, but it may have been kind of a very purposeful. Mm. We're changing our language a little bit based on this, and then over years, that becoming their own language. Yeah, it is considered an endangered language, even just based on the speaker population alone. Because if something were to happen, climate change, anything, it, things could happen that could wipe out the language very quickly. Mm. So that's why in terms of funding and things, it's considered an endangered language so that we can document it and can have evidence of it. Because there have been languages, plenty of languages have been lost in Vanuatu. And there are still some languages that face competition either by people feeling like, oh, Bislama is kind of more more accessible or or you can get better jobs if you speak more English or French or people moving to the port city where Bislama is more of the lingua franca. Those are ways that the language could disappear. I do feel like the Vanuatu is pretty special in that there is so much of your identity mixed in with your language that even for kids that grow up in the port city, it's kind of they still recognize that, oh, I came from this island, even if they've never been there. And there's still this kind of shame associated with not knowing your mother or father's language. So there is this kind of value placed on language as part of that identity, which I think helps those smaller languages to to survive, kind of to keep going. And why does the community want to have it um, written down in in a written language version of it? Yeah, so in in 1999, 2000, that's when the education systems recognized that, oh, we have a commitment to in this country to protecting our culture and to protecting our languages, and yet 
our languages of education are English and French, and sometimes almost detrimentally so, of being punished for speaking their own language. And so they looked at, I think, PNG and maybe even Solomon's and saw that they were having some um, vernacular education programs where they did primary education in the local language and found that both it helped the language because then it puts more prestige and value on the language as a language of education and then it also helps the literacy because you have kids that are coming in as five-year-olds and being spoken to in English or French and not know what's going on and then maybe learning a little bit as they go on but but really being kind of shut down right off the bat whereas they found if they're spoken to in their own language then they can start to understand what school's about and then maybe if they learn literacy in their own language, it might help them so that they are understanding what they're supposed to be understanding before being hit by both literacy as a new thing and a new language. So that was when the community was saying, hey, we need to do this. The other part was just talking with people in the community when I was living in the community and hearing like my father-in-law saying, oh, this neighboring village had missionaries that came and wrote the language. So they even have hymns in their own language, or they even have books in their own language. I wish I could hold my language in my hands. And then hearing also about, oh, you know, there's always older people that complain about younger people, but how much of that is indicative of loss or how much of that is true? Um, but feeling like a lot of the older people were saying that some of the vocabulary, some of the terms, some of the language is being lost by younger generations who mix um, more of the Bislama with language. So they were concerned that some things were being lost too. So I guess all of those things helped me feel like actually this is a pretty relevant project for the community now. I was interested to know how does the community make decisions? Like the community says do this, but how does it actually mm, Yeah, it's interesting and it's fluid. It's probably... Well, I say that we've made decisions. I don't think that those are necessarily the end decisions. So it's been an interesting part of my project, looking at both kind of the official work we did, but then also the outside just living. So um, Dr. Kabini Sangha in the education department has done a lot of research on talk story and how talk story can also be used as a methodology. Talk story is kind of the communal process of building knowledge. So valuing not just maybe what has happened in the workshops where we sat down in a classroom, talked through different different sounds and said, okay, what do we think about this sound? What do we think about this sound? Some decisions were made in that way, or at least preliminary decisions. But also, you know, when we stopped the workshop, then maybe sitting down to lunch with people who might have been shy to talk in that community or in that environment of the classroom, saying things to me like, oh, you know, yeah, we made that decision, but that doesn't really seem like that's right. Or people that maybe weren't present later talking about the decisions that were made at that orthography workshop going, yeah, but, you know, nobody talked up, nobody nobody spoke up when this happened. That's not right. You know, these are actual words. So the decision-making process is kind of tying all of those together and then maybe in another forum saying, okay, here are some of the decisions that we had talked about in the last workshop. Here are some of the things that the community is talking about outside of this. Where do we want to go with this? So it's a lot of different. I mean, part of the decision-making also is just seeing what people actually use or not. So if we have kind of this is the preliminary alphabet, if people are using it or not using it or changing things, then going, okay, maybe we need to revisit some of these decisions. Um, that happened within even the two workshops that we had. The first workshop, the focus was more on how can we preserve different sounds? So how can we preserve that in the written form? And so thinking about there are three letters, this is again going to get a little technical, but there are three letters that um, start with a nasal sound. So nda, mba, nga. And so the first thought in the first workshop was, we want to preserve those sounds and not confuse them with English sounds, duh, buh, guh. And so the thought was we would put an N before all of those sounds, or, or an N before the D, an NG before a G, 
an M before a B. Well, then when after that, I was starting to see teachers who had already started writing in the language and they didn't have any of those nasals. They just had a B. But the kids and the speakers understood that that was a mb, even though it wasn't written. Or a word starting with a D. They understood that it was nda. And then when I had samples of different kind of writings of both kinds of spelling systems, one with, with the nasals present in the writing system, one without, people found it actually really hard to figure out what the word was when it was nd rather than just a d. And so the second workshop, we kind of said, okay, you know, yes, we had wanted this so that the sounds don't get lost, but if this is a barrier to reading, that's going to make it harder for people to read and write, which is the reason that we're putting it in the writing system. And so they said, yeah, no, let's scrap that. Let's just do D, B, and G at the start of words. Although inside of the word, maybe we can have more of the nasal because then it makes more sense and that's where we expect it to be. So things like that. So it's been a very fluid, long-term decision-making from a lot of different official and unofficial kind of awarenesses around the community. Sounds like an appealingly iterative sort of process. Yes. <laughs> appealingly or frustratingly, one or the other. <laughs> you were talking about immersing yourself yourself in different cultural settings, and now you have immersed yourself in New Zealand. I'm curious to know what do you sort of notice about New Zealand as a sort of relative outsider? What's different? Yeah, I think something that hit us all when we first moved to New Zealand was that it was a better hybrid than we had found other places of kind of the Pacific values of hospitality, honoring people, that relationship, honoring culture and language, and some of the Western world. And I know that New Zealand is not perfect in those things. But for us, coming from experience in America or me in Australia... It felt like a good, at least, awareness of culture and identity and hospitality as an important thing alongside kind of the Western university bookstores. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And how does that, how did you, how could you tell or what made that concrete? Uh, I think even when we first moved here looking for a house and being greeted on the street with good morning or kia that was a big thing for us of, oh, people greet you or people thank people when they get off the bus. That was a big thing for us, actually. Yeah. And again, I think that there's still a lot of a lot of ways to go of where people would like New Zealand to be. But I think in terms of the rest of the world, it's pretty far and above what other people have done to incorporate the culture of the native um, community too. Are there any things about the way that life worked in, um, I don't even know what the name of the community is, where Dingen is spoken? Yeah, so um, you could say Bannambar area, I suppose. So my village that my mother and father-in-law are in is Retur. But yeah, it kind of spans from Bannambay down to Burumbar. Right, so, yeah, southeast Malakula, maybe. <laughs> is there anything about that that community life that you would like to see that you could feel would be a good addition to sort of New Zealand life as you experienced it? I mean, it's a small community, so I think that there's a... I don't know how it would translate to New Zealand exactly, but, I mean, just the sense of community, I guess, of people having your back. I guess one thing that I le- that I was impressed with when we first came to New Zealand was that there are individuals that are rather than police, but community members that can help downtown situations or help people that are in those areas so I guess that's the kind of thing that would be part of a village life would be more of that taking care of and helping to kind of regulate themselves as a community rather than having police or having kind of law do those kind of things so I think that and I think grieving actually Hmm. if I were to think about what are some really good benefits from Vanuatu community. I found it really hard to grieve now in Western settings in a different way because I think grieving in Vanuatu, you go and you cry with people. You know, that's part of the grieving process. And I think 
there's still an expectation in Western society that you kind of have to keep things together, even though you're grieving. And I think that it's actually really healthy that the family who has just lost somebody can cry every time that a new guest comes. And it's just about crying. And then you can go on and you can make food and you can stay with people, but that just kind of company and crying is something that I find myself missing here. I think I've heard you talk in the past about how to enter into a space that's not your own with a sense of awareness of the kind of baggage and biases and cultural lens that you bring as a white person. Yeah. Beyond building deep relationships, which you've already mentioned, what other processes do you have to go through to deconstruct that before you enter into that space? I think, kind of like you mentioned, it's a lot of that awareness of, you know, there's a really easy default to fall into, oh, this is right and this is wrong. But having the awareness of, no, this might just be what I'm used to and that there is no right or wrong to it. It's just, this is my understanding of things and this is a different culture's understanding of things. Taking that kind of label of the right way of doing things off of things is a way of kind of letting go of some of that and being a little bit more humble, I guess, about seeing that there could be values in other cultures that we might not have as a value of ours. I think also the kind of mental state of this isn't my place to talk. I'm a guest, I'm a learner. So going in with that mentality of I'm here to learn and I'm here to be a guest within a different culture rather than I'm here to bring my culture or I'm here to teach or I'm here to do is another way of of just being in the space and learning rather than, I guess, putting on something else, if that makes sense. I had a really fantastic professor in my university, Dr. James Waller, and he took students on a Race Across America tour, and he commented on it was students from Pacific Northwest, probably middle class to upper middle class, majority white, and so there was often part of the tour was just being in communities and having food with communities and just kind of living in communities in maybe rural south, predominantly black neighborhoods. And he said something that he reflected on was how many times the students would say, you know, couldn't we couldn't we involve like a mission project? Couldn't we, you know, do something to help the community or and his answer was often no, because that's not what I want you to get at, because that puts you at a different level mm. and it puts you as creates a safety bubble around you to feel like, oh, I'm doing something. I'm the savior. I'm the helper. And that's not what I want. I want you to feel what it is to be a guest in the community and other people serving you and really experience and see. And sometimes when you're in that I'm giving or I'm teaching or I'm doing, you can't just see what the value is in that community. And so I think that's also helped me of not coming in as someone that's helping or trying to change, but coming in as I'm trying to learn as a community member or I'm really here to just be in this space and learn from the space rather than bringing something with my agenda. Yeah, definitely helping can be another form of colonisation. Yeah. What I thought maybe way back in the day when I thought of different projects, I thought about what investigating kind of projects like NGOs that would have... a bit more of a reciprocal mm-hmm. so rather than an NGO coming into a community and saying we're going to do x project having a more reciprocal relationship of we're here to learn about x and in the meantime could we also help with our skills for this because I felt like we, even when I was on the ship we were involved with an NGO or with a community aid project And I felt like that always put me at a different level that I was always trying to break down and say, no, no, I'm not part of this group. I'm just crew on the ship. Like, I'm just like you. I'm just a worker. 
and I know that part of that is recognizing that, yes, I do have privileges that are outside of that, but I also think that trying to connect at a different level and just connect and just see people is really important rather than coming with an agenda sometimes. So, yeah, I would love to see more NGOs that would maybe have more of a dependence on people. Um, I heard a really good sermon once that was talking about how, um, I can't think of the scripture exactly or the story exactly, but Christ coming into a home and saying, um, letting other people serve him and how that's also an act of service is Mm -hmm. to let other people serve you. Because if you're always serving, then you don't, you don't get a chance to kind of venerate or value people and what they can bring. But having them serve you as a guest can also kind of help identify or show the values and the, and the kind of responsibility or agency that they have, which I think we talked about in the past of, I guess that's something that I've always tried to see is how are people agents of their own value or agents of their own kind of self-worth and the things that they bring. I think we've talked about this before, but the reason we wanted to start this podcast is to talk to academics about what gives them hope and and where within academia they draw their hope because studying a BA at Vic has mostly been learning about those big social structures like colonialism and capitalism and the role of all these things um, in the structures of society that we've built. But we also want to learn about the bits of society or the parts of society where we can find hope and where we can engage with to draw hope. And for you, you've mentioned that it is the agency of individuals. Yes. um, Which is something that you've focused on in your research. Can you talk about this further? How does your research highlight the agency of individuals and what does that look like for you? Yeah, so I didn't totally go for it in terms of purposefully thinking about I'm going to design research projects that focus on the agency of individuals. It was more kind of retrospectively looking at what the research was that I chose for my master's degree, what the research that I chose for my um, doctorate degree, and how I approached those research topics that I started retrospectively thinking, actually, the through line is that I often try to find the voices that are not being heard or the voices that show the agency that people have within the structures that might limit them. So, yes, for my master's degree, I was living in Orlando, Florida, and partly because my son was from, had Vanuatu heritage, partly because of just kind of where I was, I started looking for groups that were practicing Polynesian culture, Melanesian culture, Pacifica culture, and found a Hawaiian halau, which is like a dance school for um, luau, and at the same time had family members that were involved in commercial aspects of Polynesian luau presentation with kind of presenting Polynesian culture and dance to tourists. And in an anthropology degree, starting to learn about the structures and kind of commodification of culture and globalization and capitalism capitalism that um, can be threats to culture and identity, but also seeing these group of performers and seeing people within the Polynesian community in Orlando, Florida, that were diasporate away from their source culture, but still engaged in their culture and still engaged in practices of their culture. And so it got me thinking about what drives them and reading literature kind of that was critiquing Polynesian luau and critiquing different forms of commodified culture as robbing the culture aspects from it and kind of making it just so that it was sellable and not for people. But then um, seeing some of... It didn't seem like it gelled with what I was seeing with performers who were very invested in their culture, very invested in... Sh- spreading their sharing their culture and continuing it with their children but involved in these commercial performances of their culture so my masters looked at both people that were not in the commercial part of polynesian culture within the community in orlando florida and then people that were performing within that space of a more um tourist driven commodified presentations of culture and then how 
within that diaspora population, how they were using their involvement in a commercial enterprise kind of to their own advantage. Mm. So thinking about, you know, if if they were not employed as performers within a dance group that was doing this, they would be employed in a different job, which would bring them away from. But because they were involved in presenting their dance, one, they had, they could assert their agency within the structure. So even though it was, you know, maybe a bigger corporation saying, oh, we want this, this, and this, they could have a voice to say, no, that's not going to fly. Or, no, we don't want pineapples on the stage. Pineapples were part of the really horrible colonization that robbed our country Mm. of the monarchy. So, no, no pineapples on the stage, no pineapples on the decorations. And then having that voice heard made it so that they felt like they could perform in the space with honor. So, yes, so my master's degree was interviews with Polynesian performers working within a commercial space, but then also looking at how those lines were blurred between the commercial space and the non-commercial space um, because they were part of this community, this kind of diaspora community. So I found that actually I was looking at, yes, the structures that limit things maybe in terms of that presentation, but also how people are both stretching those structures and working within those structures to find ways that they could use their agency for something else. So I can use this to feed my family, and because I'm involved in dance, I have all of this community of other dancers, and so now I know who I can send my children to, to learn luau, or to learn Samoan fire knife dancing, or to learn different things. And then, yes, looking at learning about endangered languages and how how many factors there are that could be like Paul Farmer talks about structural violence so the structures of violence against continuing language right so the pull of urbanization of people wanting to get jobs in the city pulling people away from that intergenerational transmission of culture or in our language the different influences from colonialism of having English and French be the main languages of education and being prestiged over the local languages but then also again seeing kind of how my community from my partners my experience within my partner's community of seeing people value the language seeing people say I want to see my language in this way I want my kids to be able to speak in language or even my partner saying you know I I'm really proud of my nephews and nieces who can count within our language because those were those were things that I missed. Like I didn't have those words, but now they're learning them in the school system. Now they're using the word the language terms for numbers rather than the bislama. So, yeah, finding that actually I think all of my projects start leaning more and more towards what are individuals doing? How are individuals being active and agents of their own change, even within these structures. And I think that's what gives me hope, because I think it is really easy to look at all of the structural stuff and go, man, everything's effed. (laughs) But I think by only looking at the structural stuff and ignoring people's agency, you also ignore their humanity. Mm. And I think that humans give me hope. Individual humans give me hope, even if Massive humanity sometimes doesn't. (laughs) There are still people underneath all of that that I think it's honorable to tell their stories. And that's where I find hope is in their stories. You've mentioned that sometimes we do need to highlight the victimhood of people Mm. as a way of saying this needs to change. Yeah. But contrasting that also with the, as you said, agency of individuals. How do you strike that balance is that is that an intentional thing that Mm. you have to work on or is it kind of a natural thing that comes up I think on funding applications Mm. it's really probably more persuasive to focus on the victimhood but I think in terms of the story that I actually want to tell I try and not make it a footnote because I think it's a part of things but also maybe threading even in the history you look at colonialist history There are a lot of horrible things, and it's really good to know of all of those damages that add up to where people are today. But also going through history and saying, this person fought against, this person changed this, this person changed this. I think those individual stories 
can also be inspiration for the people who are now facing those inherited structural violences done to them or um, the trauma of those violences done to them, but also seeing those stories of hope can give them the action for hope. It's almost like, even within our personal histories, right, we can say, oh, these things shaped me, and some of them were good and some of them were bad, but I still have the choice at the end of the day of what I do with those. And I guess that's the balance that I try and hit of, yes, understanding where we came from, yes, understanding the things that have impacted people, but I hate, I kind of do hate the word victim. Mm. I like the word survivor because it gives more agency again. And I think that, yeah, I just, it feels icky when I only hear the victim side because I feel like, where are the people? That's not fair. And I don't think that it's very honoring of people either because I think that by showing active resistance and by showing the stories within, you can show, yes, I don't know, it's hard. It's a hard balance. Because you don't want to be all rosy-eyed of like, oh, look, everything has a happy ending. Because sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes it's really crappy. But at the same time, it's really icky to me to just focus on the victimhood and not let people shine. It sounds like, from the description of your masters and other things you said, that you're really interested in finding out what is actually happening in reality at the, at the sort of lowest level what are people really doing and how are they experiencing it more? Rather than being being happy to, to sit with generalizations and which is really interesting. Yeah. And I mean, even within my theses, you know, I have I have presented those voices who have presented critique over things. Within my thesis now, I've presented you know the structural violence of the history within Vanuatu against languages. Mm. But I think having that as kind of, here is the scenery, now here is the real story, and then the real story focusing on, yes, what's going on at an individual level. That's, because that's what gives me hope. And so that's probably why I focus on those areas. I was intrigued by your mention of the sermon and the example of Jesus not only offering hospitality but receiving it. And I'm just curious about how... Christianity, if it has, how, how it's sort of been along along the journey, the, the very interesting and complex journey you've sort of described of your life so far? I think same thing, even with my faith. I've gone through periods of time where I have to wrestle with it and make sure that it's my own. And I think even my understanding of God's love, understanding it through a lens of individuals mm. in some ways, and making that dichotomy, too, of the structures of Christianity versus the individuals of Christianity and the individual of Jesus, even, of saying, you know what, I can understand that there are structures that intertwine. So there are structures of religion that intertwine with colonialism, that intertwine with ethnocentrism, of that there's a lot within religion that is more about Western culture than it is actually about Christianity. And so teasing those out a little bit and then maybe immersing in cultures and seeing the different, again, kind of putting putting what I have or what I have experienced is not necessarily the right, so let me learn, and then being able to then look at my faith through that lens too. So, um, for example, being in Vanuatu, I think there's a much more spiritual reality than sometimes we in the West maybe give kind of give lip service to but in terms of our daily lives we kind of take it as a spiritual world but only as heaven at the end rather than a constant presence now whereas in Vanuatu because of other beliefs um, the spiritual world is very real so the spiritual threats are very real and the spiritual ability to counter those threats are very real and it's present now so I think that has also shaped my faith journey what is it like being in a, at a place where um, the spiritual realm, which I personally feel very, I want to say, disconnected from or unaware of, what, what's it like being in a place where that is very present and real? Complex. <laughs> um, it's just another layer of reality, right? So you might have the reality of 
do I walk down this street or do I walk down this lit street late at night in a material way? Or in Vanuatu, there's that second layer of do I walk by myself? Do I walk with somebody else? Do I walk anywhere outside of the house if it's kind of rainy dusk, a time where maybe there would be more spiritual threats around? Also understanding kind of the stories of how the material world and the spiritual world intertwine of, for example, there's a, there are often stories about people who maybe have the power to change into an animal and that sometimes they can do harm to people because they can shapeshift into an animal or something. Or then getting used to kind of that reality and even if on a faith level I feel like my faith in my faith in God is stronger than that and I will be protected. But also rainy day when I'm walking by myself through the gardens and I see a black dog that I haven't seen before <laughs> greeting the dog. <laughs> so like being like, oh Hello, old fella. Okay, and then continue walking. I'm just kind of, if I believe in a spiritual world in Christianity, I can't dismiss a spiritual world that I'm being told about as a reality in Manawatu. Even if it's not the culture that I grew up with, I can't dismiss it out of hand. Mm -hmm. And so I have to act within that culture. And at times it's been hard because I am an independent person and so I want to say no I can walk by myself but honoring also that in Vanuatu you don't really walk by yourself because there can be spiritual threats mm. of if you're by yourself that's a way for people to attack you without a witness prayer is certainly seen as in intercessional um, I think it's it's very much a, a reality so if my mother-in-law feels like there is a spiritual threat, she might wake up in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. and pray all through our yard. I'll wake up to her praying aloud and kind of creating a very real spiritual protection around us. So yeah, all of those are levels that... And does your mother-in-law conceptualize that in a, in a Christian sort of framework? Yep, yep. I think there's a very much synchronistic belief of that these spiritual things from our culture are very real and Christianity is very real. So Vanuatu is a predominantly Christian country, but it's a very real Christian presence. You know, It's a very active, we do have power to heal or we do have power to protect from things outside. So yes, she is definitely seeing it through a Christian lens, but also that the threat is real from her maybe her ontological beliefs, her beliefs about what the world is. And then I think there can be times when the fear gets a hold and becomes more. I think there are voices that go, hey, 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 wait, we, we are Christian. We believe that, that this will always conquer. And even within my mother-in-law, you know, if she gets quite afraid for her grandkids, that fear might win out. And then my partner might say, yeah, but remember this and then she'll go yes of course and so yeah i think i think they're both very real realms that are held at all times because yeah. like climate change versus sort of christian faith or something is what came to my mind which is more like the fear like the, the fear of the possibility is what bad things might happen mm. but then having to be reminded there's a sort of more powerful force ultimately at work in the world mm. that's the analogy that was leaping to mind for me huh interesting yeah, I guess that would be in a lot of different realms too, I mean, even personal relationships of, yes, we have hope for goodness, but we also recognize free will as something that can do damage or that can, yeah, that's a really interesting actually through line of, and maybe that's behind the way that I approach research too, of I always believe there is a hope. I always believe that there is a possibility of good. At the same time, I believe that people have free will and sometimes that can go really badly as well, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of climate change that if we continue on the way that we are, our world's going to change and it's not going to be a pleasant place. Will there still be ability to hope? Will there still be individuals that enact change? Will there still be good things? Yes, I believe so. But even if we're, even if we burn up the world and many people die, like... Mm -hmm. There will still be good 
good people and there will still be good things, but it will also be a lot worse. And that's kind of the problem of evil within the world, right? Of why would a loving God allow evil? Why would he allow climate change? Why would he allow us to destroy the planet? I believe because he, they have created free will. And so free will allows us to do a lot of crappy stuff and how and we have through history. But there is this kind of also sense of even within crap, there's hope. And for me, I think that's very on an individual level rather than a end of the world level. Mm. Yeah. It sounded like you had, from what you said earlier, kind of gone through a process of reconstructing, so deconstructing and reconstructing faith maybe trying to figure out which bits are just Western culture and, and what, what sort of, of lasting value. And I'm interested to know, have you had sort of guides in that process? Have you do, had to do it yourself? What are the books or thinkers, if any, that have <laughs> done that? Yeah, I've definitely had a lot of guides on all sides. So my son's godfather is a very staunch atheist. And I, when I approached him about being a godfather, he was kind of like, what? <laughs> First he said, how much does it pay? And then second he said, <laughs> But, you know, I don't believe stuff. And I said, yeah, I know. But he was someone that I looked up to in high school, and he asked me really hard questions about faith and really honed in on some of the inconsistencies that he felt were about Christian faith and how you could hold faith. And so he honed my faith a lot, and I feel like I've grown in my faith and as a Christian and what my beliefs are by having those challenges, by having those really times of discomfort where either people like my friend who have challenged me to say, how can you, how can you believe in church and hope when the church has done so much destruction in the world? And then, yeah, or even discomfort in being within a Christian environment or being within a church and going, wow, I don't agree at all. <laughs> like, crap, what does this mean? You know, this is this is an authority within my faith, and yet I'm finding it really, really hard to reconcile who I view God as with what they're saying. Okay, what does that mean for me? And I remember even, I think I was probably 12 or 13, sitting in a pew in a church going, yeah, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't buy this. I like, I don't buy, I don't buy that you, and people might have a different opinion than me, but I remember thinking like, if God is love and if God is saying all, every knee shall bow, all men will confess me as the Lord, then why would that end at the end of somebody's life? Like if God is eternal, what, why does that decision have to be right before you die from this world? Like, that seems like such a human construct. Mm. And how could you? How can you tell me as a 13-year-old or as a 14-year-old that my friends are going to hell and yet I will be happy in heaven? That did not gel with me. And so I kind of, through scripture and through study of the Bible, but said, you know what, I think that's you. Or even, you know, now reading the Bible and reading through some of Paul's letters going, you know, Paul is an individual I have met in my life, and they have a very legalistic way of seeing the world, and I don't agree with that kind of mentality. And so, actually, Paul, you and I, no, we're not on the same page. Mm. You bring a lot of good things, and you have things that I can learn from, but at the same time, you bring a lot of yourself and your culture, and I don't agree with that side of you. So again, just kind of stretching my faith and saying, okay, what do I believe aside from the culture of the church? What do I believe aside from maybe the culture that was entwined in the Bible? What is the kind of through line and the consistency of God through Old Testament and New Testament? And so sometimes I prefer the Old Testament, actually, because I find that even though when you look at the Old Testament, you know, another friend said, how can you reconcile the violence of the Old Testament and the God that was so violent there with the love of the New Testament? But if you recognize that people have culture, then you recognize how that culture gets imposed upon God, too, that isn't necessarily the nature of God. And if you look at kind of if God says, I am the same today, tomorrow and forever, then you have to bring all of those through and anything that's not that is culture. So, yeah, I guess that's how 
some of my Christianity has affected my culture and some of my view of culture has affected my Christianity to say, actually, I know that these are separate because I know I've gone through different communities and different realities of what is seen as reality to say, no, some of this I can see as a consistent and I can say that, yes, I do believe there is a spiritual world. I do believe that there is a loving God, but I don't believe all of this stuff that you've attached to him, her, them. And it sounds like you are trying to understand what is the character of God mm-hmm. and then arguing from that or, or understanding from, using that understanding to critique or yeah. decide what will I accept, what will I leave yeah. behind in yeah. all sorts of areas. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I think, I think that's kind of the foundation. If you, the foundation is understanding the character of God, and I think that's why the Old Testament is really important because in the Psalms, you hear about the character of God, even through crap. You know, I love the Psalms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I pray through the Psalms a lot because the Psalms. You know, there's there's also I think this perspective of Christianity, and maybe it's influenced by the New Testament of oh we should be happy and joyful. Well, the Psalms like whine and whinge and cry and are bitter and vengeful but then they always come back to that character of god of but oh yeah like that was me throwing a tantrum but god is faithful god is love god is consistent he's my foundation he's my protector and so i think i really like psalms for that reason and i feel like if you can get to that character of god behind everything then yes it is a way to view everything also my parents have joined a methodist church since we've grown up and part of the methodist tradition is also you interpret scripture through scripture so you can't interpret a scripture in isolation you have to interpret it through what are what is the character of god what are the kind of main themes throughout scripture and how does then this scripture situate within that because in isolation you can take anything and make it a bludgeon verse I was just going to ask, again, hmm. books, thinkers, who's brought uh, you on your journey? My dad read, I love being read to, so I was actually read stories too, probably through high school. Um, but my dad and I read The Singer and the Song, which were two books, that were, and then talked a lot about them. C.S. Lewis, I read God in the Dock and some of the C.S. Lewis essays when I was in high school, which helped me to realise that there can be a rational belief behind faith. I went to a small Christian college for university and took a course called A Case for Christ or A Case for Faith. And again, just kind of, and it was a university that that was a Christian university, but very much focused on heart and mind and questioning your faith of understanding why you believe something. So yes, there is a certain point where maybe you get to a place where God could be true, God could not might not be true and then that's the leap of faith but knowing that being able to think through things and get to a place where rationally i could believe that either is true Um, and that supported you that there'd be a rational component yeah i think so because yeah because i i guess it was important to me that my faith was based on some logic and not devoid of logic i love the um other thinkers, I guess. Einstein. I love theoretical physics just as like a fun thing. <laughs> so Einstein has a quote about, you know, oh, I'm going to mess up the quote. It's something like religion without science is foolish. Science without religion is dead. Of, I think, understanding that there might be more than the material world gives meaning to the material world. But understanding also that you can't have a religion that's devoid of thought or logic or of interaction with the material world. We know things through those senses. I have gone from a lot of different fields, so maybe that's also how it's shaped my... So I started in philosophy, then went to cultural anthropology, then went to linguistics. So I think that's also shaped kind of wrestling with those big questions of foundationally, what is real? What what are the implications of what you decide are real? And then looking at that kind of as a continuum with a culture, what is viewed as real? What is the continuation of those? What does that mean for how it's expressed within a culture based on what's real? Yeah, and then within linguistics, how does language play a part in 
how we communicate what is real, how we communicate who we are. And so I think all of that feeds back to those big questions of what is real, what is God, what is life, who are we? And that's probably been my origin story for all of what I've gone in life. And maybe that's why I keep coming back to the individual of what does an individual believe about their circumstance and then how does that affect how they interact with the world? Because structures will always be there. It's been so wonderful to talk to you. Thank Thank you so much for coming and agreeing to give us your time. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Such a joy. It's been great. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. I've learned so much. (laughs) Thank you.